0: You're listening to MND Matters, a podcast from the MND Association.
1: Welcome to MND Matters, brought to you by the MND Association. Alongside members of the MND community, including people affected by the disease, health and social care professionals and supporters, we will be bringing stories, information, and expertise direct to your ears. Subscribe to ensure you don't miss an episode. I'm Nick and I work in the research team at the MND Association.
0: And I'm Becky, I'm one of the area support coordinators down in Sussex.
1: Those of you who would have heard some of our previous podcasts will notice we have a new co-host with us today. And, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to Becky.
0: Thanks Nick, thanks for having me. Um, in this episode, Let's Talk Research, we'll be touching on just a few aspects of m research. We're gonna be exploring topics and questions frequently asked by the m community and discussing some of the research behind it. For more information about any of the topics raised in this episode, please do take a look at our website and also check out the research blog. Also, just to say later on, we'll be hearing from Danny Baird, who's living with MND, and she's currently taking part in a clinical trial. And we're gonna hear from Professor Martin Turner, who's a neurologist and researcher on the genetics of MND.
1: And it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Brian Dickey, the Director of Research and Development of the MND Association. Brian's been working at the association for over 20 years Brian nice of you to join us today. Thanks for the invitation Nick.
0: And also Nick you're here wearing two hats this week because you're not only the host of the podcast but you're also head of research so looking forward to this episode. So one of the main questions that I think I hear a lot from our MND community um, is do we have a lab in the office Brian?
2: There's a quick answer to that, which is no, we don't. Uh, We're a research funder and I guess a research facilitator as well. Um, So if I explain a little bit about the funding, first of all, we at the moment are funding over 80 grants, and that's a collective commitment of over 14 million pounds That's spread over several years. We also fund mainly in the UK, uh, but we'll fund anywhere in the world, you know, if it's going to give us the answers. To the questions. It doesn't matter whether it's in London, England or London, Ontario, if it's the highest quality research and the greatest relevance to MND. We do have a couple of um, criteria though. Uh, one is that the work needs to be unique in concept or design. In other words, nobody in the UK is already doing that sort of research. And the second one is there has to be a kind of formal collaboration with a uk research team or a research institute and that way we make sure that new knowledge new skills new expertise are drawn into the uk to help to build up our own research base so you know we expect the researchers to collaborate and we also try and collaborate as a funder as well with other funding agencies
0: so it really is like a a global effort isn't it Um, It's really interesting to know that you collaborate and because I I suppose it'd be interesting to know how you choose what research to fund.
2: Yeah, that can be a challenge um, because uh, opportunity exceeds resource, greatly exceeds resource. We can only afford to fund about one in five of all the ideas that come in through the door so we have a process to separate the wheat from the chaff it's uh, called uh, peer review Um, many organizations use this Uh, we send each application out to leading experts around the world and then we have advisory panels who come together twice a year to go through every single proposal and determine which ones are of the highest quality and greatest relevance to mnd And all of that fits within a a broader research strategy. So I mentioned the 80 projects earlier. They all fall within four key themes. The first is what we call identifying targets. So that's um, understanding the causes of MND, developing better models of MND in the lab. So in other words, something in the lab that actually mimics what's going on in the patient and um, homing in on the pivotal processes that determine life or death for motor neuron and a a great example of uh, the collaboration is the international project mine program which is the world's biggest um, gene hunting program on a single disease and uh, we were involved very early in that study it now involves 20 countries around the world all trying to understand the genetic basis of this disease you know once you've identified these targets and that's what drug companies want you know they want something to shoot at so they need to know what these pivotal processes are you can move on to saying okay how can we turn that into treatments and that's a whole program of drug discovery drug development all the way through to clinical trials um, recently we announced a joint funding call with a charity called life which um, is kind of the leading UK charity when it comes to drug discovery and drug development. And we're hoping to turn this one-off call actually into a more productive long-term initiative because we can learn so much from them. And they actually have a good track record of taking ideas from the lab them through into clinical trials and then of course getting them on the market and that's what we're looking for as treatments. So the third area is really understanding the human disease and that means that you need to really study what's called phenotyping, understanding how the disease progresses physically on the outside, but also what's happening on the inside as well. So, we fund a lot of what's called biomarker research, and that involves taking blood samples, CSS samples, um, saliva, urine, as well, and analyzing for chemical changes that are happening within the body as the disease manifests and as it progresses. And then finally, the, the fourth area is um, I'd call it the care, because there's an awful lot we can do while we're waiting for these drugs to come through the pipeline into clinical trials. And we really need to understand how best to provide timely, coordinated, multidisciplinary care. And that's not just having an impact on quality of life, it's actually having an impact on quantity of life as well. And it links back to clinical drug trials as well, because we need to make sure that all the hospitals that are participating in trials are providing that same high quality standard of care so that we're not throwing additional noise into clinical studies.
1: I think it's important as well, Brian, to say that we not only do we fund projects, but we also fund people and we have different types of uh, grants for that, which is really great. And we're trying to underpin really the best and brightest people and keep them in MND research. And you also touched on the kind of international effort um looking at motor neuron disease and you know we organized the symposium you must have seen that change considerably over over the years you've been working for the association
2: uh yeah i mean it certainly um changed recently as you and i know when we've uh, gone online and um yeah the first symposium which uh predates me i have to say uh attracted about 40 delegates and it was held in Solly Hull, the Swallow Hotel in Solly Hull in Birmingham Um, and it's changed a lot since then. Um, Now we have usually at least 1200 delegates turn up to the face-to-face event and as we discovered last year when because of the pandemic we had to move online uh, we actually increased our reach and we had over 1800 delegates from a record 48 countries around the world and that collaboration, that cross fertilization of new ideas, new discoveries, from all the different subfields of MND research is so vital, because in the rare disease in particular like MND, we can't have people operating in silos, we've got to have this international collaboration that transcends individual institutes, or indeed, national boundaries
1: i think that question of collaboration is is really key as well in cracking these big questions i think there's a there's a great example of that recently which is the covid vaccination you know people would say to us often you know why how come there's a vaccine for covid but there's no cure for mnd um i mean i think we know the exact the the answers to that but you want to just touch on that for us brian please
2: well certainly i mean you know the 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 first thing is COVID is a single-cause disease. It's caused by a virus, whereas uh, MND is much, much more complex than that. If you consider that the strategy for COVID is actually a 200-year-old tried and tested approach, which is vaccination, that's been around since the days of Edward Jenner and Louis Pasteur, um, albeit the current COVID vaccinations have a 21st century twist to them. but that said, there's a huge amount of learning we can take from the COVID experience. Uh, first of all, yeah, this unprecedented collaboration and sharing of new data, new information between academics, between governments, um, even between uh, drug companies. Now, you know, they don't normally do this, so you know, I think it's uh, encouraging for the future that hopefully we'll see less of a silo mentality there. Um, I think the other thing is, it's amazing how you can cut through the bureaucracy when you really need to. You know, we've seen trials that have been set up in a few weeks, whereas they would have usually take in months, sometimes even years. And I think we need to take this forward, this sense of proportionality into other life threatening diseases. Um, but of course, I think the main uh, challenge is what they also brought to the COVID battle was money, a lot of money, you know, it's certainly not a panacea for everything, but certainly multi-billion pound cash injections certainly help. Um, you know, I am increasingly encouraged that we're seeing more investment in MND research, particularly from drug companies, because they're, they're, they're starting to address neurodegeneration because there's such a big unmet need there. You know, I think one of the encouraging things is that they're coming into neurodegeneration, but a lot of them are starting to say, well, actually, we think, although MND is a smaller market, it's a rarer disease, we actually think it may be more tractable than Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, so therefore maybe we'll focus on MND first, and then if we can crack that, it will open up these bigger markets. You know, I think um, there's a lot of, Uh, I think a lot of excitement at the moment that we can take the explosion of new knowledge that's happened over the past 20 years and start to move away from asking the question. What's going on here to well, we're starting to understand what's going on here now. What can we do about it? Um, You just need to look at a condition called spinal muscular atrophy. Which is a a childhood um, motor neuron uh condition and we now have effective treatments on the market for that now the spinal muscular atrophy is not adult onset motor neuron disease the vast majority of cases occur in the first six months of life and motor neurons in a six-month-old or a two-year-old child are very different from the motor neurons in a 50 or 60 year old person but it's proof of principle it shows that motor neurons can be protected and so we're now taking these strategies forward to see if they work in the some of the inherited forms of the disease initially and certainly we don't have all the readouts from the trials yet because they're still in progress but the initial um, findings are certainly
1: very positive positive. and those companies that have created really those therapies for spinal muscular atrophy are also the same companies that are, that are backing these treatments and trials in motor neuron disease so that is a really you know it's a, it's a it's a really a new dawn I guess and a new era that we're we're getting into with potentially gene therapies um you mentioned inherited MND I mean that's one of the questions that uh, we often hear is you know if somebody in the family has MND does it mean that I will get it too um we know there are some genes associated with MND And uh, we pose this question, actually, to Professor Martin Turner from the University of Oxford.
3: The short answer to the question is no, because the majority of MND cases arise from a complex mixture of factors in which a person's genetic makeup is just one aspect. All of us are a mixture of our parents' genetics, and we're put together in a different mix from that of any siblings that we have. And our own children are similarly a mixture of our own DNA and that of their other parent. And there are actually very few medical conditions that are inherited in a totally predictable way. And single cases of MND in a family are therefore usually simply a one-off, and we call that sporadic, with no significantly increased risk to close relatives. Now in about 10 to 15% of people with MND, We can identify a change in the code of a single gene that has definitely driven the development of the condition largely on its own. And many of these individuals will have a positive family history whereby one of their parents or a sibling also had MND or sometimes they had a rare type of dementia called FTD which can be another manifestation of one particular genetic change. And these rarer single gene changes that cause MND do carry a 50-50 chance of being passed on to the children, each of the children that that individual might have. But even so, this doesn't always mean that that child goes on to develop MND during their natural lifetime, even if they are a carrier of that gene change. Now, difficulty can arise where a person doesn't know their family history, perhaps because they were adopted or if their parents died at a young age, potentially before MND had a chance to show and so remained hidden in that generation. But in those circumstances it's still most likely that someone with MND is an isolated case and that it won't be inherited in a simple way. Now genetic testing can be requested by anyone with MND but it shouldn't be done without understanding what it can and what it can't show And it's definitely something to discuss very carefully with uh, a neurologist who specializes in MND. I
1: think that gives us a real understanding that obviously MND is a complex disease with, with, as we mentioned before, there are many potential different causes that have to combine together for somebody to develop the symptoms.
2: Yes, I think another important thing to mention is that although we've found many of the genes involved in MND, especially in in the inherited forms of the disease, we found about three quarters of uh, the genes. Um, Of course, that means that there's still a quarter that we haven't found. And so a negative gene test won't inform us about that. So, you know, even if somebody takes a genetic test, you can't rule out genes that you haven't yet discovered. Um, I think a, a real driver for more genetic testing, uh, particularly in the diagnostic process, is going to be the emergence of effective treatments that target these genes, these anti-sense treatments that are being uh, developed at the moment.
0: It's really fascinating listen to, listening to you both talking about this, but um, as a non medical person or researcher or scientist, um, there's often questions that we hear from what we see in the press. And at the minute, we're seeing lots of exposure from the amazing Doddy Weir and uh, Rob Burrow. So you can't help but think uh, the question of, is there a link between sport and m and I just wanted to throw that to you, but in a simpler way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there isn't a simple answer, I think is the first thing. Um, certainly, it does appear that people who are diagnosed with MND tend to have a history of um, being fit, sporty, athletic. Um, uh, Martin Turner, who we just heard from, often says that if somebody comes to my clinic um, looking for diagnosis, I often look at the thickness of their medical folder. And if it's very thin, in other words, they haven't got a history of lots of other illnesses, that actually can be an indicator that it might be uh, MND. So um, particularly the, the link with sport, um, it's a tricky one because the the way these links are established is through a process called epidemiology. It's often looking at large numbers of people and uh, looking at their lifestyles, their diets, etc. And it can be a very blunt instrument. It's very good at Um, generating associations, links, but it doesn't actually establish definitively whether something is a cause or not. Now we know that MND is what's called a multifactorial disease. Um, there are a number of events have to occur, a number of steps that have to occur in order to tilt the balance in favour of the disease occurring. Um, I often use the analogy of a set of balancing scales, like the scales of justice, and something has to tilt those ba- that balance. And many of these factors are like grains of sand on one side of the scales. No one on their own causes the disease. It's the combination of genetic grains of sand, of environmental grains of sand, that build up over decades, perhaps, and it might be the timing as well, exactly when it happens is so important. So it's really difficult to unpick what these grains of sand are, you know, for example, going back to the sport, there's been uh, a suggestion that maybe concussion or trauma can be a predisposing factor in MND. But there are other factors that have to be brought in as well. Uh, For example, um, sportsmen, of course, exercise a lot that's the nature of their um, business so if you're exercising excessively are you actually kind of wearing out your motor neurons faster Um, there's some evidence that that might be the case but once again it's it's very very subtle and it probably isn't sufficient on its own and certainly of course the health benefits of exercise far outweigh any small increased risk of developing MND. But there's another theory as well. So um, this is where I can kind of try and differentiate between um, association and causation. And that is, okay, let's say we find more sports people are likely to develop MND. And we say, well, it it must be something to do with that sport, that occupation. Well, it could be completely unrelated. There's a lot of evidence that people with MND exhibit what's called a cellular hypermetabolism. In other words, their cells are burning energy at a slightly faster rate than the rest of us. And that's effectively something they're born with. And therefore, if you're hypermetabolic as a child, then maybe you're a bit more active as a child. And therefore you get drawn into sport at an early age as an outlet for that activity and you stick within that sport and you're more likely to become adept at that sport to the extent that you play it professionally. And so the fact that maybe more professional sportsmen appear to have MND is not linked to their sport or the exercise or the head injuries. It's actually linked to something that's going on in their cells and has been going on since before they were even born. So we don't have any clear answers here. We have hints about what's going on. And certainly, of course, we need to explore these further to try and really get to grips because there is the possibility that we could actually start to give advice to younger family members, particularly where the scales are loaded by a particular genetic predisposition. There could be kind of dietary lifestyle advice that might just help to ensure that the
1: scales don't get loaded too quickly. We know six people are diagnosed with MND every day in the UK and six people die when I mean, there's a lifetime risk of one in 300. But all of those people are not sportsmen or women. and um, so is this is this anecdotal? I mean, what what are we doing to um, kind of find out what people have done in their past life histories, careers, that kind of thing, and exposures?
2: Well, one of the things uh, we can do, first of all, is uh, establish a a national MND register so that we're identifying every single person in the country because there are some fundamental, even more fundamental questions than the one you just uh, asked, Nick. We don't actually know how many people there are with MND in the country. So if we can establish a national register that ideally picks up close on 100% of everybody who's uh, diagnosed with the disease, we'll know how many they are, we'll know where they are. So you can start to say, well, is there any aspect linked to their particular geography, their local environment, what subtypes of MND are they, and in what proportions, what care is available? And then the next layer down is if you're in contact with everybody is you can start to do some more detailed epidemiology studies and asking people about their lifestyles, their diets. Um, You know, sometimes this can be fraught with uh, difficulty because uh, these events may have happened 30, 40 years ago. So asking a person what they had for breakfast 30 years ago may not be the most accurate. So it's not going to give us all the answers, but certainly the first bit is actually having a a population-based register that's picking everybody up, because that way if you're asking the questions to people, then you know that you're asking it to everybody and not just a select subgroup of people which might actually skew the results.
0: Does MND, is it more likely to affect men than women?
2: Uh, Yes, uh, overall, it seems to be uh, a ratio of about three to two, male to female. However, it gets closer to one to one with age. Uh, So certainly postmenopausal, it's much closer to to one to one. And, you know, that raises theories in itself. Um, For example, the effect of estrogens in the body. And there is some evidence that estrogens might actually help to protect neurons to a certain extent, and that's a line of therapy development that has been looked at. I have to say it probably hasn't really delivered yet.
0: That just goes to show how important it is about the m and d register and building this better picture and understanding across the country.
2: Of... Yeah, and you know in future we'd like to see the the register as actually being the gateway to taking part in other sorts of research, you know, clinical research, even clinical trials. Brilliant.
0: So that leads actually quite nicely onto another question we hear daily, I think, um, in terms of how can you take part in MND research or what does that look like? Because there's lots of different types of research, isn't there?
2: Yeah, it can uh, look very different depending on what you're doing. You know, taking part in research can be as simple as, um taking part in the national register um giving a a blood sample for um, genetic analysis taking part in healthcare surveys and then of course it can also mean taking part in clinical drug trials as well i think probably the most interest is in the the drug trials and i have to stress first of all that drug trials are medical experiments they're not treatments they're absolutely vital to first of all Work out if a drug's working or not, but also to establish whether it might not be working. And, you know, one of the frustrating things over the past 25 years is that more trials have actually had to be stopped because of the side effects than have actually made it through to marketable effective treatments and you know that's one of the reasons that we're also very cautious with um, any recommendation for uh, unapproved and untested treatments because they do have to go through this rigorous evaluation process so the encouraging thing is that there are um, more trials coming down the pipeline as i mentioned earlier there's an unprecedented number of drug companies interested in this area Um, we have new trial platforms that are hopefully going to make the process much more efficient, um, much less expensive and uh, much faster. And you know that means smaller, cheaper, smarter, and indeed more trials. Um, so the MND Smart platform, which is uh, being rolled out across the UK, and uh, the Tricals platform, which is a, a pan-European initiative bringing together the leading centres in many European countries are um, going to be absolutely fundamental to this in the future.
0: Brilliant. We, we're actually really fortunate enough to have spoken to somebody called Danny Baird, who is living with MND, and she has agreed to tell us a little bit more about the research that she's taking part in. Um, Danny was diagnosed back in 2014 and she's actually the fifth person in her family, the fifth of her siblings, to have been diagnosed with MND and the research trial she's taking part in is absolutely fascinating and links with what you were saying before about the genetics and she's just got a wonderful way of explaining her situation and it's a very positive message so this is what she had to say when we caught up with her earlier.
4: I got involved with the SOD1 trial in Sheffield um, Soon after I was diagnosed, um, simply really because of uh, my professor at King's College, Chris Shaw, he I, and it, I just went all out to find something. I just, you know, I knew I wanted to find something, but it, I know we're only a small proportion of M&D um, sufferers, 2%, I think. Um, but um, it was really important for me to find or do something to help, help me as well as help the cause. Um, and it's worked for me, so I've been very lucky. I didn't have any fears. I'm 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 quite I'm quite a relaxed sort of person, and the lumber punches I suppose a lot of people would be scared of, but I'm quite sort of tough like that. So um, <laughs> I no, I wasn't at all scared. They were so nice. Everybody was everybody's so nice uh, treating me. So I've never felt scared. Never. I go into the research center at Sheffield, which is attached to Citran, um, and I have loads. They, they monitor me totally because Biogen requests that. So I have blood tests, I have breathing tests, I have um, ear, ear, those things where you do your heart um, and you know everything, muscle testing. Then at the end of it, I get a lumbar puncture. So they um, go into my spine. They take fluid off, and then they put the drug in. But I'm so used to it now; I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. And I've got had very they they've learned to do it really well. I have I've had several different um, doctors do it, but they're, they're all so good. And I have a fabulous nurse who looks after me, so it's all fine. But somehow, being stuck at home with M and D was a quite a change, and I quite liked getting out there. So. and and meeting people and having a purpose and having a reason to go somewhere and I'd go to King's Cross and uh, I'd sit in the first class lounge and it's all paid for by Biogen and then i go first class up to Sheffield and the rail staff are just amazing. Now I've never felt it a burden. In fact, secretly deep down I quite look forward to it because I know all the people in the research centre now and they know me and it's like old friends so it's nice to go back and see everybody. So, no, it's never been the thought of being able to have I've got children and I, and the future and and it's time something was done about this awful um, disease. It's horrific. i'm the I'm the fifth one in my family to have it, and we've lost four members, brothers and sisters. so you know i'm I've sort of there's a big reason for me to be doing this, um, which makes it all worthwhile.
0: I mean, wow, that's a really positive message there from Danny but I suppose it's worth mentioning here about um clinical trials and the way they work and do do we know that it's working and I guess understanding in a layman's terms what happens when somebody goes on a clinical trial and then the information we get out at the end of it Nick I don't know if you've got any reflections on on that particular click there from Danny or
1: yeah it's, um, you know, that's a really positive story. You know, we we must caveat that with the fact we don't really know if the trial is working yet because it's still ongoing, but um, Danny certainly feels that it's had a significant um, influence on her M&D progression. You know, it's, it's amazing to see the commitment really and the partnership that people living with and affected by M&D are prepared to go to to take part in these trials. You know, that's something that we we we're we so privileged to have such a great community that's willing to take part in these things because it is a it is a a significant amount of effort and commitment the trial that danny is participating in is
2: um what we call a targeted therapy so it's not going to be available For everybody with MND, chances are it will only be effective in this small proportion of people with this particular inherited form of the disease. But I think what it uh, illustrates is that we can't treat MND as one amorphous disease. We have to treat it as many diseases that have similar symptoms. And therefore, therapies will be more personalized, more bespoke to each particular form of the disease but I think it's really exciting I think if we can make inroads even in just one subtype of the disease it's going to open the door to many many more opportunities for treatment
1: that's really where we want to be more people in trials MND isn't incurable we think it's underfunded and as Brian said throughout this podcast you know there are more and more trials taking part more companies interested so the time really is now. There's real positivity in the air, and I think you know we we keep driving M and D research forward, and uh, and we'll get to that place we want to be—a uh, world free from M and D. Brian, on that on that note, you know I I feel quite optimistic um, with great hope for the future. You've you've been in in this in your position for quite some time, and you know how do you feel now? Do you think that? M&D, we really are pushing at the door for effective therapies and treatments and something is around the corner or how, how, how are you with your optimistic view or otherwise? I certainly
2: think we're closer than ever before. Um, I, I often use a rather cliched expression that uh, we, we might not quite see the light at the end of the tunnel yet but the train is um, heading in the right direction and it's picking up speed Um, I think we just need to look at other diseases to see how things can change. Um, Multiple sclerosis is one, um, cancer is another. And in fact, I think we should have the ambition to maybe be a little bit more like the cancer field, um, where they have that ambition to get every person diagnosed an opportunity to take part in a therapeutic study. And also, uh, as a kind of consequence of that, research becomes an integral part of the care they receive. And I think that's, you know, that is quite profound because you don't treat care and research as two different things. They're all part of that holistic approach to treatment.
0: It's a really positive message, and I feel like it's been a really positive experience to be able to ask these questions to you both on behalf of the MND community, because I know that these are things that people with living with MND or affected by MND sit and think about quite a lot. And probably quite a lot of hours have been dedicated to the questions and answers that we've put to you today. So just wanted to say thank you for taking the time to explaining it and what you just said there about people taking part in uh, clinical and research as part of alongside the care. I know that our MND community fully believe in that. Like I've never met a group of people That have been more driven to find the cause and the cure than the people living with and affected by mnd so it's just wonderful to be able to have the opportunity to have this access to you guys and share that on this podcast and um just wanted to thank you
1: thank you so much i want to say a great big thank you to you brian for taking part in this podcast and thank you becky co-host and also thank you martin turner and danny for taking part as well and answering some of our questions if people have particular topics they'd like us to discuss in some of the future podcasts as well, please get in touch with the association and let us know. And um, we'd be more than happy to consider that. And hopefully there'll be many more, many more podcasts like this on research in the pipeline. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in this podcast, please head to our website uh, or contact MD Connect, our helpline, where we'll, we'll be more than willing to answer any of your questions and, and signpost you to other resources if required. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to MND Matters, a podcast from the MND Association. Find more information at mndassociation.org and if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, contact our helpline, MND Connect, on 0808 802 6262 or email mndconnect at mndassociation.org. dot org.